This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are in the middle of pandemic sheltering and we're also in season six, on the tail end of season six. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I teach at Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies and I write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger magazine. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York. He's an assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago and he's a columnist for National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's good to see you. Welcome. David, it's good to see you too from our uh, respective socially distant locations brought together by the magic of technology. (laughs) We also have special bonus segments for all of you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks we add a bit of bonus audio. That's an extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francis effectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. We're going to be talking about three topics today. We're going to be continuing at the end our segments on the sacraments. Today we're going to be talking about the sacrament of reconciliation. On the way to that, we're going to talk about some legislation that has recently been passed under the cover of the COVID-19 pandemic that affects protest around fossil fuels. And we're also going to be talking about an essay that I just had published recently in National Catholic Reporter. But before we do all that, Dan, let's do some check-in. How have you been? David, I've been doing okay, trying to adjust to the new normal like everybody else. It's been a challenge, um, as you might imagine, but it's been okay. Uh, Since we last talked, there have been uh, increased cases, of course, in Chicago, sadly increased deaths uh, here and, and around the country and the globe. There's a somber cloud that's kind of setting in. Yeah, adjusting to the new normal, that's what I keep thinking. You know, we were talking just before we started the episode about the the time frame and and how, you know, last week or the week before this was kind of novel and oh, this is different and it's a mixing up of the daily routine. And then realizing that we're actually gonna have to settle in for the long haul for more weeks for sure, and maybe many more months. 
which is daunting to think about. As I like to think about it in all terms, running, you know, this is not a 5K, this is an ultra marathon. And in order to not die and to complete an ultra marathon, you have to pace yourself and to pace yourself very deliberately. So that's what I'm trying to do is adjust routine wise, adjust kind of my mentality and emotions and spirituality, physically trying to keep moving as well. All, you know, in, with, with a prioritization towards safety. Uh, of course, thinking about and praying for all of my friends and, and family and uh, dear ones and the strangers, especially those on the front line. So, and I know that a lot of our listeners are in solidarity there too. So plugging along, that's my, that's how I'm doing. Uh, not traveling <laughs> six seasons in. Normally I'm, I'm talking about going somewhere. I am going absolutely nowhere and nowhere fast. David, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. My family is doing okay, Dan. We're all, I think, realizing exactly what you said, the kind of ultra marathon thing. We're very blessed that we're in a house that we love. We're, we're very blessed that we have enough room that we all can kind of be in our own spaces while we're doing our respective work. And so right now, as I'm recording this, my wife is on a conference call. My son is in his room doing e-learning with some Zoom and, uh, and tele-learning apps. My daughter is in her room doing the same thing. And we were lucky that we have bandwidth. We're lucky that we have space and we're lucky that we're not all kind of crawling on top of each other. Something my wife and I have been talking about a lot is the policies that make the kind of access that we have not equitably accessible to other people. And so my wife is moving more towards policy work in her career. And we're talking about how we can be learning lessons from this present experience as she pivots into policy work to really be thinking about access issues and equity issues for the vulnerable populations and the less fortunate populations among us. So we're trying to take the suffering that we're experiencing, because it is a a form of suffering, we're trying to take the suffering of isolation and the suffering of fear and trying to make it a little bit more positive in terms of how we how we think about moving out of this situation into into the next things whenever those happen but i will also just say personally that i'm not sleeping very well my anxiety is ramped up and my my wife jokes with me that you know i'm agoraphobic and germophobic under the best of circumstances and she has had to watch me have those kind of dialed up to 11 or maybe 12 in the in the last couple of weeks i have a lot of support and i'm doing all right but it is a stressful time and it has it is taking a physical toll and i know that's true for a lot of our listeners as well and so i just want to say that we're very much as you said in solidarity and in prayer with those that are having this series of events affect them in various ways. And you mentioned that you're not running and you're not traveling, but you and I are both still teaching. And maybe it might be interesting to our listeners to maybe mention a little bit, how are you managing the movement from live teaching, which I knew you did a lot of, to a kind of all online schedule? Has that been smooth or have there been some hiccups? Yeah. uh, Well, even before that, just a small correction that I am actually still running. And I do that very early in the morning. And fortunately, before the sun rises, I've not encountered, I think I've maybe over the last week and a half or so encountered one other person out and awake. So it's very, very socially distant, which is nice. Sadly, the out of necessity, I support this decision on the part of the mayor, but the lake trail, which I love to run run on, uh, is closed along with adjacent parks. But the other parks Chicago are still open. So the streets and that sort of thing, particularly during a pandemic and early in the morning are pretty 
pretty safe and open. So, so as long as my health allows me to, that's been uh, a real respite. It's been very helpful. As for the, as for the learning or the teaching online, it's something I've shared with a number of my friends who are also academics who teach primarily undergraduates or teach at universities that are you know predominantly in person. I feel very very fortunate because at CTU we do have a pretty robust distance learning infrastructure. And so I've always used the online educational software. We use a platform called D2L at CTU. It's it's similar to Blackboard and Canvas and these other platforms that, that other schools use. And it's something I feel pretty comfortable with. So there have been times where I've had to be away or I'm out of the country, that sort of thing. And I've m- migrated on a kind of week by week basis in the past, maybe one lecture or something like that online. And so I already had a familiarity with it. For me, the, the growing pains were not too immense. But it's a different it's a different reality. And and one of the things I find myself really mindful of is the the kind of context that people find themselves in. You know, uh, the example that you use, which is very different than my own. I live with five other people, but it's five friars, five grown men. Um, we can relate to each other in a different way than when you have, for instance, a spouse and children like you do, particularly the kids thing changes the whole equation quite a bit. So I know that a number of our students are in a similar sort of situation or they themselves might be sick or, you know, are caregivers or whatever. And so I think the biggest adjustment for me has been trying to adjust my expectations, some of the assignments, some of my approach to the grading and evaluation of those assignments and the like. So adjustment of expectations has been the primary thing rather than the kind of technological hurdles that I think a lot of people have experienced over these last few weeks. How about you, David? Well, it's a similar thing for me. I last semester at Loyola was the first time that I had ever taught online. And so I taught one course through their their platform that they call Zoom, which I think is pretty ubiquitous for a lot of learning institutions right now. It allows multiple faces and voices to come into a video chat and you can record it. It's fairly robust, but also has some limitations. And so learning that was sort of uh, an interesting learning curve last semester, not under stressful situation and under stressful conditions. But this semester, the thing that was tricky for me was I teach very differently when I'm in person. And part of what I do, my teaching style is very interactive even when it's online. But when it's in person, I really am trying to feed off of not just what the students are saying to me, but also their body language and their emotional reactions. Like if some, if I say something and I spot somebody's face change, I will pick up on that and I'll, and I'll find ways to tactically draw that reaction into the conversation because sometimes that can indicate something that is really the spirit of the class. Very difficult to do that online. And in fact, there was one point where I tried to do that in one of my online classes and I said, I just noticed that your face changed and the student was almost offended. Like, why are you watching me? And I'm like, well, your, mm-hmm. your, fa- your face is right there. But, but that was also a real learning moment for me to realize that there's a different set of expectations with regard to interaction and etiquette with online learning than there is in the classroom. You can't just port one to the other. And we mentioned in the last episode that I've been doing these little daily concerts at 2 p.m. on Facebook Live because I used to be a, a traveling singer-songwriter. And so I've I've been performing some of my songs and some other people's songs just for, you know, kind of an audience of whoever shows up. But what I discovered in doing that was sort of twofold. One, something that I knew for a long time, and that is performance is a muscle. 
And if you don't exercise that muscle regularly, it atrophies. And so learning how to simply perform again, like simply putting the, the fingers in the right place and having the right timing and having the right kind of instincts for that, I'm relearning that and it's taking me time. 10 or 11 days in, I'm finally starting to feel like my old performing self again. But what I also realized was there's a completely different set of muscles on top of that for doing something for a camera, doing something for not a live audience. And it's very similar to my experience of having to learn how to be a teacher online. It's really trial by fire. And and you don't, even if you're a seasoned teacher, you're a seasoned teacher, I'm a seasoned teacher, the, the education in the classroom setting doesn't really prepare you to be to have the native instincts to do it online. So I, like you said, I mean, I'm grateful that you have more experience of this. And when we're not recording, I may ask you for some tips, but I'm grateful for you and others that have, that have some sense of how to navigate this because it's been really helpful to me and talking to you and others to try and figure out a way to improve my game with this. And I'll say too, that I, I am certainly no expert in distance learning or, or digital learning. In fact, I have not taught an entire online course before. It's always been a blended sort of situation. So I'm I'm seeing myself, and, and that's something I've reminded a number of my colleagues too, who have had far less experience than I have with online technologies in, in terms of uh, higher education learning. And I've had to remind them as a lot of other people have. I know the Chronicle of Higher Education is basically pumping out advice columns left and right, addressing exactly these points. One, on the one hand, you know, telling everybody who's a professor and academic to, to take a deep breath and calm down that this is not a sabbatical. This is not a vacation. You do not need to become all of a sudden more productive and publish another book in the midst of this. I think that's wise advice. I think the other thing too that's important for academics to realize is that this is not your time to you know, the expectations are not such that you need to create a perfect online course. It's a totally, as you rightly say, it's a totally different medium. And to do it well requires a lot of upfront work, requires thinking pedagogically in a way different than the way you would in the classroom. And so this is really a triage. It's really a, you know, we're, we're trying to do the best given the circumstances, try to meet our students where they are given the circumstances, and to be patient with ourselves too. Now, I, it's been announced that CTU is moving its summer institute, its summer courses entirely online. And so this is being done several months in advance, you know, out of, I think, wise preparation. I was scheduled and I am scheduled to teach a, a Christology course um, during the summer institute. Uh, it's, it's a one-week course and I'm thinking about it very differently. So I'm going to go into that differently than I did, in, you know, in terms of wrapping up this semester, which is what we're all doing kind of in, in the middle of it all. So uh, it requires a, just a very different way of thinking. And I'm learning a lot myself along the way. So this might be a good time for us to take a short break, and we'll continue in just a moment with the show. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about the news, current events, politics, you know, your latest global pandemic, and all sorts of other things through a lens informed by our shared Catholic faith. Over the past few weeks, everyone's attention has rightly been focused on the increasing threat of COVID-19 and the pandemic that has emerged. During that time, however, a number of states have quietly passed laws that have designated pipelines and fossil fuel production as, quote, critical infrastructure assets, unquote. The governors of Kentucky, 
West Virginia, and South Dakota have all signed legislation that have increased penalties and fines for protest or disruptions of oil transport and production. These laws come as the Trump administration has eased enforcement of restrictions aimed at polluters and has approved a number of new mining projects. David, what are we to think about this and what do you, Ladato, see here? <laughs> well, first of all, I think that oftentimes when we hear this kind of report that there has been, you know, sort of under the cover of some distraction, new laws that are making it more difficult to protest, we oftentimes think of this as a Republican tactic. I think the first thing to mention is that these laws have been signed into effect by not only Republican governors in the last week, but also by at least one. Democratic governor in Kentucky, Andy Bushier. And so this is, in some sense, a bipartisan reactionary move against what we saw at things like the Keystone Pipeline, those protests and other ecological protests going on. Now, it's important for listeners to understand that these pipelines do, in one sense, deliver critical infrastructure needs. I mean, just because we're in a pandemic, that doesn't mean the need for fossil fuels has lessened considerably. There's still over-the-road transport and all those sort of things that, that are in need of gasoline. At the same time, these kinds of pipelines have shown themselves to be kind of disastrous from an environmental standpoint because they fail with some regularity. And when they fail, they fail disastrously. And the, the other piece for listeners to sort of understand as a backgrounder is that oftentimes these pipelines are put through the lands of vulnerable peoples, either people in economic distress or often through native and tribally protected lands. And so all of these things are factors in terms of why people would want to protest having these basically be put in their backyard. And the the ratcheting up of these laws against the protest, one of the things that's disturbing about them is not just these last three, but also over the past year, we've had six others. The language of it oftentimes likens the protest to an act of terrorism. And so all of that is sort of stuff that I want to put on the table. Now with that, I mean, you mentioned Laudato Si. As a Franciscan, I'm going to assume that your sympathies would be in line with those that want to protect the sanctity of the earth and want to protect kind of fragile wilderness areas. But first of all, is that assumption on the mark or would you would you have a different political position about this? No, no, no. It's it's as predictable as it seems. I'm very disturbed about this. I think everything you've named really gives voice to what is disconcerting about the whole circumstance. I also think one of the things it's worth noting that this is kind of emblematic of is a bigger move. You know, there's that that kind of cliche in, in political discourse about never letting a good crisis go to waste. And I kind of feel like what we see here is the, what is it, the point of the spear, the head of the spear of politicians of both sides of the aisle, as you rightly say, who will see ways to advantage their constituents or to advantage their own interests or political ideology by means of the cover of, of the pandemic, either because people are rightly distracted or people can't respond. And in terms of protesting, there's very little people can do collectively at this point for their own health and safety. So these are interesting measures that are being taken. And I think to me, they seem symptomatic of, uh, of a bigger problem and a bigger threat, even if it, the problem hasn't been fully manifested yet. Well, and you mentioned collective action and the restriction on collective action. Uh, just to give one example, South Dakota, which just passed a law this past week on March 23rd, as we're recording this, its legislation talks about defining a riot 
as three or more persons. <laughs> and so, you know, you and two friends get together and you decide to stand holding signs, there's a chance that that could be considered a riot in certain jurisdictions. Now, I, I don't want to over-dramatize the way that these laws are being enforced, but I'm not actually stretching it too much because we have seen laws like this used in exactly the way that you're saying. They have a chilling effect, not only in the sense of prosecution, but just in the sense of even being brought up on a charge, if you have to hire a lawyer, that can be economically devastating to an individual or to a small nonprofit organization. So these laws can be effective even if they're never actually enforced to the point of prosecuting anyone. And those are all pieces that that we need to understand. Now, I guess in one sense we could say that we're living in a time when we can't have terrorists disrupt our infrastructure. But the point about this is that we also, in the process of wanting to make sure that critical infrastructure is protected, just as you said a moment ago, that we don't in some way define citizens acting out of conscience as terrorists. And we don't find a way to stifle legitimate speech, even protest speech, in the process. And that seems to be the goal of a lot of this legislation, is to completely chill and stifle protest speech. So let me ask you, as a person who has read the major documents and the minor documents in terms of Catholic moral thought and Catholic social teaching, what are the protections in Catholic social teaching and Catholic moral teaching in terms of our right to protest, our right to speak up, our right to speak our conscience? Well, I'll just add first a short disclaimer that I'm not a theological ethicist and, and don't uh, I don't even play one on TV. So you're, you're right to say that I have some experience, some formal training in this. I mean, certainly by virtue of preparation for ordination and the studies that I've had. What I'll say is more broadly sweeping, and that is that the church has always, over the last hundred plus years in its modern social teaching, protected the rights of individuals to organize together, and we see this most clearly in the church's teaching on the dignity of labor and of work, of, of organizing for collective bargaining, for instance, that is considered a right, a human right, and something that's protected by church teaching in our ethics. And I think there is also something worth remembering that we've talked about quite a bit on this show over the years, and that is the primary function, as the church teaches, of government is to protect and promote the common good. And and when we look at, as Pope Francis says, our common home, our sister mother earth, or if we think about the disproportionate kind of consequences that some of these burdens place on some populations rather than others, we see that the common good is not being maintained. There's a violation of the common good. So I think those two principles are great places to begin in thinking about how important this is. It's a move toward a kind of dictatorial or totalitarian sort of state where the public are not allowed to express their right of voice um, or not able to congregate. Now, obviously, this is a very interesting circumstance that we're in right now with a pandemic and congregating is actually to be discouraged not for political or ideological or financial reasons but for public health and so that complicates things and again this brings us back to the tip of the spear argument which is i think some people might see this as an opportunity to gain foothold in order to change 
laws to to dampen to quiet um, resistance and democratic processes. Well, there's something that you said a moment ago that I think is essential to keep in mind here. You talked about the common good and that the role of government. I'm actually looking back over the catechism right now in, in the section on the seventh commandment, and it's exactly in line with what you're saying. This notion that the role of government is to protect the common good and. What we see oftentimes, particularly in the American political context, is a misaligning or an intentional slippage where economic good is supplanted for the general common good. And that's not a Catholic position. You can't collapse the common good into simply economic prosperity or the interests of business. And oftentimes what gets lost in that in terms of legislation, and I think about the lobbying organizations like ALEC that propose model legislation, this is legislation that oftentimes originates from the business community and the the other voices are never at the table. And what we need in terms of our laws, what we need in terms of these protections are those that actually encompass the wide variety of lived natural life in the world. And that's going to be a variety of interests that stem beyond the economic and have to do with other aspects of the common good. We continually seem to lose sight of that in our context. And I'm very concerned, just as you were saying, that this is kind of a tip of the spear and a tip of the spear that is being sort of pushed by business interests and not by those who would have all of the interests of all of the people in their sights at this point. Well, and this is something too, it ties back to something that's been on my radar for the last two weeks. And my latest column as we're recording this for NCR was just published this morning. And uh, as I share for our Patreon listeners in this week's column commentary, I, I talk about the evolution of this particular column. It, 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 day by day, I was I was changing what I was thinking about. And and that's partly because I had more time to allow the topic to be in the front burner as opposed to the back burner when I'm otherwise more occupied and, and traveling about and so forth. But one of the things I've been concerned about is this sort of right-wing Catholic, both political and ecclesial drum being beat by certain notable ecclesial leaders, you know, including a cardinal, but also some well-known political commentators, I would say. Um, they're not quite journalists. They're not, I don't know what to call them. We'll call them commentators or pundits or something like this. But the argument has been under the guise of faith, under the guise of piety and devotion, there has been what I would see as a wolf in sheep's clothing, which is an argument that's socially and culturally driven as well as economically or fiscally driven. And it is basically distillable down to this notion of uh, a distorted sense of the common good, which is utilitarianism. This idea that it's better that even one, two, three percent of our population, especially the elderly, the most vulnerable, the most precarious, die rather than the GDP drop or a stock investment returns decrease or that sort of thing. And it's an economic argument that I find absolutely abhorrent. And I know a lot of other people do as well. And yet this hasn't stopped people from thinking this way. And what I what I see in the topic that we're discussing right now more broadly, what, what kicked off this conversation in this segment of this episode, is this notion of protest around the environment, around safety, around communities that are uh, collectively precarious or are marginalized, like our Native sisters and brothers, um, like those in low-income communities or rural populations. And, and it's being kind of 
shepherded this this sort of ideology under the guise of the COVID-19 response and these sorts of things. Likewise, there's this, this kind of argument being put forward. It's a specious argument about the economy at the expense of others. And, and there's, a, there's just a dripping irony that the folks making those kind of arguments are the ones who are often the ones kicking and screaming the most around things like the right to life, the pro-life movement, and so forth, are oftentimes the folks today who are the quickest to argue for economic recovery at the expense of human life. And to me, it's just untenable. So I want to make sure that I'm following the connections that you're making. And, and I heard two in that. The first is that those who would support legislation that would restrict protest for things like pipelines are the ones also who would be the most vocal for wanting to use religious protections for certain types of protests against abortion and other sorts of things. That's point number one well, that I heard. Maybe, maybe that wasn't exactly my point. My point was the parallel in terms of what I would, I suppose, call from a philosophical standpoint, a non sequitur argument, right? There's a leap that's made. And so the leap is, in the case of the pipeline protesting and these these kind of harsher laws and that kind of stuff, is one of, well, we need to ratchet up protections in the age of coronavirus and these other things for essential utilities like the pipeline and so forth. And that's driven primarily by ideology more than it is out of kind of economic necessity and these sorts of things. And the ideology is one of profit. It's one of, it is an economic argument, but it's not one for the common good, we can say. So that I see the kind of the leap that's made there, the non sequitur leap is one analogous to the kind of leap that people are making today around protesting the WHO and CDC protocols, uh, calling for the closing of worship spaces and, and churches and these sorts of things, and people crying out about that. And using that, I think, again, as the tip of a spear to push through an economic and social cultural ideology that actually stands against a, a kind of a spirit or ethic of life and the other things that the church stands for. Well, what's fascinating in what you just said is it makes me think that there are certain factors in our government and our society right now that are much more energized to protect non-corporeal political entities like corporations and their interests and are much more willing to sacrifice flesh and blood bodies of the vulnerable in this crisis. And did I hear that in what you were saying as well? I think it's true. I mean, there there's a preferential option for the juridical person in the U.S. sort of way of thinking. And that stands up against, you know, everything that's at the core of the right uh, to life in, in, in a kind of consistent ethic of life that I think is the only way to be pro-life, which circles back around to this conversation we're having about the pipeline and protest and, and the earth more broadly and the rest of creation, which is to be pro-life is to be for life. And I'm sorry, juridical persons, corporations are a fiction. They're paperwork. They do, you know, they do not exist in reality. They are a convenient concept that allows for real persons to benefit without taking on upon themselves the risk of consequence. And so, you know, I think I don't think corporations in and of themselves are bad or that the idea of a limited liability corporation in and of itself is bad, but let's be real about this. Unfortunately, 
with a lot of decisions by the Supreme Court in recent years. You know, we can th- see that, for instance, with like Citizens United, the decision about campaign financing and, and other such things where juridical persons, corporations, as it were, are afforded greater protections of what would ordinarily be considered civil liberties like freedom of speech and that sort of thing and religious protection even. We can think about cases like the... Uh, Little Sisters you know, of the Poor and Hobby exactly, Lobby and all that. Hobby yeah. Lobby, exactly, exactly. And so the thing that distinguishes those zombies... You know, they're not even zombies because they weren't formally living anything. They're, they're again, fictions, juridical persons, is that they have a lot of money that allows for that kind of work where a small community, a small tribe in South Dakota of uh, First Nations people, of Native Americans, do not have that same kind of access and have been historically disenfranchised. So it's just, it's insult to injury. Well, listeners, we don't have certainly any kind of 50,000 foot view on this yet. It's a developing situation we wanted to make sure was on your radar. And hopefully we've given you some ways to think about it in terms of Catholic social thought. We will certainly be keeping our eye on this. We encourage you to do so as well. We're going to step away for a moment and take a break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Horan. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dalt, and we are still very socially distant, but we are still in communion with one another in the Holy Spirit, as we are with you. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics. This week, we are talking about a number of things, including anti-protest measures. We're going to talk now about David's latest essay in NCR, and then we will move to talk about the Sacrament of Reconciliation, so stay tuned for that. But before, earlier the week of this recording, the Francis Effect podcast's own Dr. David Dalt published a personal and what I truly consider to be a powerful essay about growing up in the world of the, quote, prepper community. That is, those women and men who focus on an apocalyptic vision of history that requires preparation, hence prepper, is in preparation, in the form of self-defense and military training, readiness and hyper-awareness, and the stockpiling of food and supplies and weapons. In this challenging time of global pandemic caused by the novel coronavirus, David returned to the experiences had and lessons learned, both good and bad, from his having been raised in this sort of setting. David, as always, I'm grateful for your personal writing. Um, I've shared that on this podcast, and I've shared it with you personally. I especially love your monthly column at St. Anthony Mester Magazine, and I know many of our listeners appreciate it as well. For those who haven't yet had a chance to read your excellent article, which I'm sure we'll link in the show notes, could you give us a quick summary and explain why you wrote this piece at this time? Thank you. I appreciate those kind words very much. This I'm assuming that this happens to other people, but it happened to me. I tweeted a couple of things about a week and a half ago with regard to my experience of the sheltering in place and watching the rest of the world kind of catch up to my childhood. And those tweets were seen by the new executive editor of NCR, Heidi Schlumpf. And uh, she... Friend of the podcast. Friend of the podcast. She's appeared on the podcast. She reached out to me and she said, would I like to write that up into a more formal kind of reflection? And she and I had a couple of conversations about what that might look like and what what we both landed on was we wanted to find a way to talk about some of the stranger aspects of my childhood. And we can get into that a little bit about kind of what was strange about my childhood, or at least what was atypical about my childhood. But both she and I wanted to find a way to pivot from that to something that was hopeful and helpful to readers. 
And so the essay kind of functions in two parts. The first part talks about the way that I grew up, which was I was raised by a single mother who was alcoholic, who was paranoid, and who was a member of the far-right John Birch Society and had spent some time before I was born, both in Michigan and in Arizona, with groups that in the 1960s and early 70s didn't go by this name, but by the 1980s and early 90s were called the militia movement. And so my mother understood armaments, and she taught me armaments when I was a child. She understood tactics, and she understood preparation. And so I grew up with a prepping culture, and it was prepping not only in terms of the stockpiling of food and the readiness at a moment's notice to pick up a bag and have to go into the field if you needed to, but also preparation in terms of armaments and readiness to make warfare. So that's all my background. And the second half of the essay is talking about a little bit of the events that helped to pull me away from that kind of mindset. And the more than a decade that it took me to sort of let go of that mindset. And now that I'm raising children of my own, the kind of ways in which I'm trying to prepare them for the world that we're living in a world where we don't look at neighbors as enemies, but instead we look at neighbors as sort of an interdependent group of people that we are here to help and that can help us. And I will say that in a couple of days since the column has been out, I have gotten some pushback from some members of prepper culture who say, oh, your experience is not the right experience. Real preppers are always helpers. And I will say I I take that critique, but I also have to say that was not my experience growing up in the late 70s and early 80s. It was a much more isolated and paranoid sort of approach to the prepper culture. So there's a lot here that we might want to explore, but I'd be interested in where you'd want to go with that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, and again, you know, for the fuller context, we we recommend to all of our listeners to check out David's piece online. I will say that I, I have been fascinated from the time I was a teenager with a lot of the militia movements, not out of personal kind of uh, appeal, but out of curiosity, having grown up in the age of David Koresh in, in Waco, Texas, to the Oklahoma City bombings when I was in high school, to a, a number of instances, including when I was uh, in college, I took as one of my with my elective credits an introduction to sociology course which was fascinating and the professor who taught that course specialized in these uh, kind of fringe militia white supremacist movements in Michigan and in western Pennsylvania as the Southern Poverty Law Center points out there are quite a few you know of these organizations in places like Pennsylvania and, and even New York you know rural parts of these places so it's been very interesting to me so I, I raise that uh, as, as, as just some of my interest and background. But I also say that there's, there's I, in light of the pandemic and the, the concerns that folks have rightly had about access to things like medicine and food and, and these sorts of things, there is a part of me that is kind of familial that is not in any way like your experience. But I, I'll just mention my maternal grandfather was somebody who wasn't paranoid. He wasn't part of a militia group, but he had this kind of maybe positive prepper mentality that became sort of a, you know, a, a idiosyncrasy among my family that we kind of tease him about, which is going to Costco. And like, he would never, this would be, I, I've been thinking about him nonstop with the runs on toilet paper, where in the basement, he would have like two years supply of toilet paper and paper towels and dry goods and stuff. Not because he was anticipating an apocalyptic showdown or battle, but just because his personality was one, not quite hoarding, because it wasn't just keeping junk and stuff around, but it was a kind of 
preparation. Like, oh, I'd, I'd like to have, I'd like to be ready and prepared and have these things on hand. And so my, my aunts and uncles would joke sometimes about going over to my grandparents' house. You know, the, both of them are deceased at this point, but joking about like shopping in their basement, you know, this sort of thing. And I've thought about, about my grandfather a lot during this time because I share that instinct. And when things get like this, and this is where to bring it back to your piece, you know, you talk about being kind of triggered by the current moment and people stocking up and ordinary people now being confronted with what do they do. And this kind of triggers, I would say, maybe a slightly positive side that you have some training in this area, but it's deeply, deeply outweighed by the negative, destructive, abusive side of things. Well, and and this is something that I think I didn't do as well as now in retrospect, I wish I had in the column. And that is, I am not trying to say that prepping and being prepared like your grandfather is, like you mentioned with your grandfather, that that is a bad thing. I'm not trying to say that there's a bad side to having what you need in a crisis. I think what I'm trying to talk about in the essay is something slightly different, and that is the mindset behind it and the community ethic that is the narrative within it. And to have that community ethic that says my neighbor is my enemy, which is very much the ethic that I grew up with. So by the time my mother passed away in 2009, she was living bunkered down in a house in South Columbus, the town that I grew up in, and she had cardboard on the windows. You know, she was literally thinking of her neighbors as enemies, even as she was withering away in health and could have used someone stopping by and checking in on her and things like that. And that's really more what I want to be lifting out in in a piece like this is to say, it's not that you have a couple of extra cans of beans. Maybe right now having a couple of extra cans of beans is the right thing to do. Maybe having a, you know more than a week's supply of toilet paper is the right thing to do. But when you go to the store, say around the first of the month, if you're only thinking about your cans of beans and you're not thinking about the people on WIC vouchers who are coming at the first of the month and that's the only time that they can get stuff, if you're buying everything off of the shelves because you need it versus I need to maybe get one can of beans today and make sure that there's a enough that my neighbors can have some too. That's more the mindset that I'm that I'm trying to start with in this piece. And I think it comes through very clearly. I think about the way you wrap it up at the end when you're talking about, and here I'm just going to quote the last two lines, the events of the pandemic have shown us how small the world really is and how tenuous our safety nets and supply chains actually are. But it has also shown us how interconnected we are. These days, I'm not preparing for the world to end. I'm preparing for the wisdom to do my part to help rebuild it. And I think that's the spirit that you're talking about, this notion of helping, as you say in the, in, in the piece, you know, helping, not hoarding. And hoarding is different than being than preparing. Hoarding and this kind of view of the other as enemy, like you described in your own mother's experience, and, and I think the mentality of a lot of folks who are in these militia movements, it, it's rooted not in faith but in fear. And that to me seems to be the big takeaway is, you know, everyone is on end. Everybody is anxious. Everybody is nervous. Everybody is fearful. And I think there are, as I like to say, legitimate and illegitimate fears. And I think that health and safety is a legitimate fear. I think access to the supplies necessary for folks is a legitimate fear. But an illegitimate fear is one that leads to this hoarding mentality that you're talking about and viewing the other as enemy. And and I think that's really important. 
one of the things that it's got me thinking about is when it comes to the Catholic theological tradition, there's this notion of self-defense, and it's a controverted subject because there are a number of conflicting theological views over the course of Christian history. St. Augustine, for instance, just on physical self-defense said, it is better to die to be killed than to kill in self-defense. Whereas Thomas Aquinas, 800 years later, offers a different view. He says that the most inherent sort of instinct among living creatures, particularly humans, is the preservation of life, and that's a good in its own. And so that if you are being transgressed, if somebody is coming attacking you, it is the protection of a good. And I'm here, I'm, I'm really kind of offering a very, very flip paraphrase, right? Because Thomas is known for a lot of things. Brevity is not one of them. But in, a, in essence, he holds a different view where he says it is a maintenance of a good and it can be justified, though it's not encouraged to kill another to preserve one's life or the life of, a, of another person. So I, I think that similarly, there are tensions that exist in, in the modern sort of Christian and Catholic worldview about, well, wait a minute, if I'm stocking up all these things, if I'm hoarding all these things, or they may not call it hoarding, but in this prepping culture that you're talking about, people might view that as a good to be protected you know, uh, one's own preservation, the preservation of family members. I mean, what what do you say to that? Well, so I, I have a lot to say to that. In one sense, it's a question of degrees. And in another sense, it's a question of what I'll say is worldview or mindset. So let me take each of those in turn. A question of degrees. I, I mentioned earlier in the program that I used to be a performing singer-songwriter. And when I would go to coffee houses, and oftentimes in coffee house culture, you're playing shows with three or four other musicians. I got a reputation in the Atlanta music scene pretty early as a person that if you had come to the coffee house and you had forgotten your tuner, or your tuner wasn't working to help to tune your guitar, you could probably find Dalt and he would probably have an extra one. And so that's a piece of kind of the way that my prepping culture extended. I always wanted to make sure that of anything that was critical, I had a backup. And I think that that's a good thing if it's not taken to an extreme. I mean, I don't need to carry 50 tuners, but having an extra one sometimes allowed me to be a good neighbor to another musician. And it meant that I always had a backup in case mine wasn't working. So in that sense, that's a rational kind of approach. And what I want to sort of expand that to then is a, is a way of kind of thinking about that in terms of worldview or in terms of the ultimate story underneath. It wasn't simply a matter of being prepared for an extreme situation. The kind of culture that I grew up in was a culture where we were always expecting in the next moment it would be an extreme situation and always prepared. I mean, you, you mentioned Augustine and Aquinas. I would hope, because I haven't looked at, at, at either of those writers on this particular question of self-defense, but I would hope that both of them would look at that as a matter of rarity and extremity, that it would be a rare case where you'd ever be put to the test where you'd have to have this moral question. In the household that I grew up in, it, this was not simply an abstract moral question. This was something that we were drilled on, that I was drilled on, basically every week of my life. I remember one conversation I had with my mother about, you know, when the communists come and ask you if you love your teddy bear and if you love your family, what will you say? You know, those kinds of things. And and I remember being like six, seven years old and saying, well, I would say I don't love them and, and being told, no, you have to say that you love them because if you say that you don't love them, they've already won. And it's it just, I mean, these were the kinds of, these were the kinds of mental gymnastics that I was growing up with and being kind of, kind of taught 
from a very early age, taught to think about someone asking me an innocuous question about whether or not I loved my teddy bear with suspicion. And that really speaks to the deeper thing that I'm trying to point out here is that, you know, when you go to the grocery store and you are looking at the rows of toilet paper, are you looking at them and you're saying to yourself, wow, there's enough for me and my neighbors? Or do you say, wow, they haven't put a restriction on this yet, so I can get at least half of this and screw my neighbors? And and that's, that's the kind of difference that I'm trying to really... Uh, surface and highlight here is that you know the the mindset that says we're always in the extreme situation and the others are always out to get me that can't by any stretch of the imagination be a Catholic or Christian position as I understand it and as I have looked at Catholicism and Christianity more broadly it has helped me to step back from that notion that my neighbor is my enemy and instead even to think of my enemy as my neighbor now we can have it sounds a lot like a Jesus yeah we 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 can <laughs> have a, an entirely we can have a huge conversation about that but but to me that's really the fulcrum point of what I'm trying to say in this piece is it's that shift and I really do credit that shift to my coming to faith which you know I wasn't raised in a faith tradition I was ra- well I guess I was in one sense I was raised in an ideological faith tradition but it certainly wasn't a Christian one but as I have become uh, you know sort of more informed about the teachings of Jesus and more informed about the teachings of the Christian faith generally my position has shifted greatly and at a deep level in terms of these basic questions of how I view my neighbor. Well, and I think some of what you're getting at and using the example of going to, you know, the grocery store and and talking about toilet paper or what have you is something that has kind of th- that contrast in thinking has infiltrated a broader sort of Christian worldview too. And here's where I see the kind of wisdom or logic of libertarianism infiltrating like a virus, like a coronavirus, the wisdom and logic of Christianity. And as St. Paul says, you know, there there are two really diametrically opposed realities, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And here, a kind of logic of the world is this libertarianism, which is, you know, I'm free to do my own thing. I'm going to take care of myself first. It's a real self-centered and at times utilitarian sort of worldview that doesn't take into account exactly what you're naming, which is Jesus's whole life, death, and resurrection came to signify the message of the gospel. What did he proclaim? The the proclamation is that who is my neighbor? Who is my enemy? There's a major blurring of these two categories and for understandable reasons. You know, in a world that's much more tribal, that was smaller, that didn't have the kind of scientific knowledge or communication abilities and travel abilities that we have today, you need to really know who it is you're dealing with. With, that the idea of neighbor is a very kind of circumscribed, limited concept, and that's for individual and collective safety. And to have the Word made flesh, God come to the world to remind folks who are in a much more, I would say, sympathetic context for that kind of self-protective mentality for for God to say, no, 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 this is not how I've intended you humans to live. This is not how you're supposed to be. It was striking then, it's striking now, and I think it's important for us as Christians to keep reminding ourselves of, because there will be these currents, there will be these temptations to put ourselves forward, to put ourselves at the center, and that I just don't think cannot be justified by the gospel. Well, when you're when you're saying that, I'm thinking of Paul in Galatians saying very clearly, there are teachers who have come among you who are proclaiming a gospel that is no gospel, because truly there's only one gospel, and that's kind of what you're saying when you when you try and take 
this very clear ethic of neighbor love and you try and, and bolt libertarianism onto it or rugged individualism or any of these sorts of things, it becomes this mutated form of the gospel. I'm thinking of that scene in A Fish Called Wanda where the, the main villain is told, you know, the main point of Buddhism is not every man for himself. <laughs> and, and it's a similar sort of thing with Christianity. The main point of Christianity is not every man for himself. It's we find ways to get the least of these there or we don't get there. You're so right about that, but I, I'm just compelled to jump in to say that it's not even, you know, each man for himself. It's oftentimes I'm not the one to go first. Right. It's the whoever lays down one's life for their friend is loving one another as God has loved us. And so it's actually it's a subordinating of my own interest for others or more collectively everybody else, as opposed to the flip of that, which is what you're saying, which is this notion that that I take care of myself. I'm it, we hear it as well in terms of Christian charity and kind of arguments against the government's role in promoting and protecting the common good, which is I should accumulate as much wealth and power as I can. And then with my excess, I'll use that for others. And actually the gospel says something quite opposite, you know, uh, particularly if we look at the Acts of the Apostles, kind of part two of Luke's gospel account. And, and you have a very different vision of what authentic Christian discipleship is, which is sharing everything in common precisely so that nobody lacks. You know, I will say, and first of all, I just want to thank you again for taking a few minutes to talk about this column. I never in my wildest dreams imagined that this aspect of my childhood would have any kind of use for anybody. And the fact that Heidi Schlumpf at National Catholic Reporter gave me the chance to rethink it and to repackage it in this way, and the fact that you've taken the time to kind of talk to me about it, both of those, they're deep surprises to me, and I feel incredibly blessed by just the opportunity to to reimagine this aspect of my growing up and my rearing in a way that might actually be helpful to people instead of harmful to people. So I'm just grateful for all of this. And thanks for taking the time today. Well, thank you for the, the vulnerability and the sharing of your own experience for the benefit of others. There's a lot more to unpack there. And I think our, our listeners can go check that out at NCR. We'll have a link up to the, uh, to, to the article. Thank you very much, David. And I think with that, we'll take a break and we'll come back in a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about news and current events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. This season, we've decided to take a bit of time each episode to talk about the seven sacraments of the Church. So far, we've talked about baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, and the anointing of the sick— and today we're going to talk about the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Now, like the anointing of the sick, this sacrament is known by many names. It's oftentimes called confession. You may also have heard it referred to as the Sacrament of Penance, and that might be a good place to start, Dan. What should we be calling this sacrament? The technical name is the Sacrament of Penance or the Rite of Penance. It is fine to call a confession. That's the way, the way most people talk about it. That's not technically correct, but that's a component of the rite itself. We can say more about that in a minute. People also use the phrase, the sacrament or rite of, of reconciliation. 
that's also a component as well, one might think. And so I think it's okay to say that, but it's it's important to realize that both the term confession and reconciliation are euphemisms that are describing either an intended goal or what one's actually doing as part of the ritual, but the formal sacrament is called the rite of penance. Now, I want to make sure that I understand the structure of this as a layperson. So I am living in the world, and I inevitably do things that cause me to fall into sin. Some of those sins are minor sins, and some of them are major sins, and we can maybe talk about the technical language around that. And then I need to examine my conscience as I'm preparing to go into this sacrament. And then entering the sacrament itself, there's a point where I say to a priest the things that I think that I have done. I may or may not have a conversation with the priest. At that point, the priest gives me tasks to do. That's the penance part, like say some Hail Marys or something. And then the priest also is doing something called an absolution. And then I'm free to go back into the world and sin again. So first of all, do I have the, well, the, the major pieces? <laughs> I think you just named a, a stereotype, a critique of Catholicism. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm talking yeah. about kind of the lay understanding of how this works. Yeah. So where where does that lay understanding fall short and what, what correctives so, do we need? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And, and I think you summarized well what a lot of people think about. I, I think it's useful to use what is, is kind of classic terminology in this case, the, the venial and mortal sin difference. That's useful here when talking about the sacrament of penance, because venial sins are considered by even by definition, the etymology of the term are these kind of lesser little sins. They're the kind of stumblings that we regularly, daily, many of us hourly fall into. It's it's the lies, it's the 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 uncharitable thought or the thing we say, the the insult, these kinds of things, the selfishness, the self centeredness, the rejecting God in various ways and these kinds of things. And it's important to realize, you know, a lot of folks, particularly those who are raised in such a way to be especially scrupulous, are very, very concerned about whether they could approach the Eucharist, you know, to communion, if they have not gone to the sacrament of penance beforehand. And it's important to realize that no human person, the church teaches, no human person is worthy to approach the Blessed Sacrament. You know, that's just, it's a, it's a common denominator from the Pope all the way down to the, you know, the newly, the most newly communicated seven-year-old. And the reason is because we we are finite, we are sinful, we, we are subject, as St. Augustine says, to the consequences, the effects of original sin, that is, our, our will is kind of weighed down by concupiscence, that we're inclined to sin. Paul talks about this, of course, you know, you know, he knows what he shouldn't do, but he does it anyways, this kind of stuff. We all know that feeling, which is exactly why part of the celebration of the Eucharist begins with a, a rite of penance. It is what opens up with, uh, with a little prayer of absolution, right? You know, whether it's the Kyrie alone, oftentimes kind of in daily, daily mass, like Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, or whether it's the confidior, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my sisters and brothers, there's a public confession. The prayer afterwards is a prayer of absolution. And that is to make sure that we all acknowledge our sinfulness. We call it to mind. We use it, as you rightly say, as a moment of examination of conscience in order to prepare ourselves, as the introduction to the rite of penance goes, to prepare ourselves to celebrate these mysteries. And so that's really important to realize. And and we pray, of course, before approaching the Blessed Sacrament that we're not worthy to enter under, you know, to have the Lord enter under our roof to, to come to us, but but because it's the will of God, right? Only say the word in the voice of the centurion, only say the word, and my soul shall be healed, we shall be healed. This idea that God invites us, though we are unworthy, we don't do anything to merit that grace in, the, in Christ's presence. So that's one thing, the context in general. Mortal sin is something where it's it's of a grave nature, it's conscious and deliberate, 
it varies. There are different categories. I think one way to think about this is it's it's very serious sin, and some of those things the church teaches require the celebration of the of the sacrament of penance in order to prepare oneself dispositionally, uh, spiritually to you know to be in full communion with the church. And by church, I mean the whole body of Christ, the communion of saints. And that would be things like murder. That'd be things like adultery. That'd be things you know of that sort. It's very hard to make a generalized statement. So I will say this, that, that that distinction is important because some people get very caught up on, you know, well, you know, I said a really mean thing to my coworker this week. Can I go to communion or do I need to go to confession first? And the, and the answer is it depends. <laughs> you know, every case is, is, is a bit different, but that's where that distinction is helpful. Well, let me, let me ask a follow-on question. So having sort of grown up in a very Protestant environment, I think that there's a real skepticism about the notion of, about the role of a priest. And oftentimes I'll hear my Protestant friends say, all you need is to ask Jesus, and Jesus has done it all for you. So when a Catholic goes to confession, and when they are, when they are in the sacrament of penance, and the priest is providing forgiveness and absolution, on whose behalf is the priest doing that? Who is the priest representing at that moment? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's you, you phrased it exactly right, that there are a lot of factors at play here. I, I think it's worth stepping back for a moment to realize that, it, as we've said before in other segments about the sacraments, each of the sacraments is accomplished, is performed, as it were, by Christ. So who, quote, forgives sins, end quote, Christ does. Who baptizes, Christ does. Who anoints, Christ does. And this is where the Thomist notion of secondary causality is really important, right? God is the primary cause who works through secondary causes. When it comes to forgiveness of sins, the priest is not forgiving anything. The priest does not forgive anybody. The prayer of absolution is not a prayer of forgiveness. I that's that's a complete misunderstanding of what's going on here. Absolution itself etymologically and theologically means to dissolve, to remove, to break as it were. So absolution is the breaking of the chains that weigh a penitent down. So what is the guilt? What is the oppression? What is the, you know, the the kind of neuroses? What are the things that we carry with us? The the weight on our consciences, we might say. That is what's being removed. Absolution is about a removal, a breaking free from these chains of, of, of oppression that come with sin. The forgiveness has already taken place in Christ. And this is this is you know where we have to meet the Protestants of various stripes kind of part way and say no 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 you're right only God forgives sins but the role of of the minister of the sacrament is to preside over this sacramental celebration so here's a couple other things if I can just walk through the sacrament very briefly because. I think a lot of people don't realize this. Most second graders are trained to say a formula when they go into a confessional or, or, or approach a priest for the celebration of the sacrament. And they say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been blah, 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 blah. That is not in the right at all. That is completely made up. That is not part of the sacrament. And I'm sorry if that is scandalous to people. I, like you, was raised to say that. It's, it's a formula that kind of I think to look at it in terms of a glass half full situation, what's nice about it is it, it puts some people at ease because if they know that phrasing, if they know that formula, they can get in kind of talking when they're dealing with something that is very vulnerable. And so they're, they're, I understand the psychological benefit to that. However, the sacrament is presided over by the priest. 
And the way that the the rite of penance is outlined, the priest is the one who begins and begins by invitation and says, you know, welcome, welcome to the sacrament. You know, here I'm offering a general structure, right? It can be very, it can be very ad hoc, but it's a, it's an inviting of the penitent in recognizing in that moment, it could be said explicitly, I prefer to do that if I'm presiding, you know, over the sacrament of penance to say, we acknowledge God's forgiveness and love and mercy already always present. And that you're here because of the inspiration of the Holy spirit of God's grace working in your heart and in your conscience. And then it could be something as simple as an invitation, like, and, and what brings you here today? That's often the phrase that I use and that's what's called for. And at that moment, there can be, as you said earlier, a conversation, but the penitent oftentimes, and this is, there's nothing wrong with this, slips into the bless me, Father, for I have sinned routine. That's fine. That's fine. But you don't have to do that. You can go right into saying, you know, this has been weighing on my conscience. This has been bothering me. These are the things that, these are my sins that I'm carrying. They're, you know, the baggage that weighs me down, right? So there could be then after that, that's the confession part of the sacrament of penance. Then there is you know, a moment for some pastoral counseling, some response, and it could be brief, it could be lengthy, there could be a recommendation, well, why don't, maybe you need to see a spiritual director, is this an ongoing thing, is this, what are the circumstances of your life? These kind of questions to help contextualize it. Then there is a uh, an assignment of penance, and, and this is, again, this is confused sometimes within the Catholic community and by our Protestant sisters and brothers who don't understand the, the dynamics here. They assume it's a quid pro quo. If you say these 10 Hail Marys, then God forgives you. And that is not the point. That is a heresy that is 100% untrue. The penance is a sign of thanksgiving and reparation and response to try to make whole this relationship. This is where reconciliation comes in, in the celebration of the sacrament of penance, that you want to reconcile with God, with one another, with oneself and creation. And to do so, it's sometimes symbolic in terms of prayer or actions or some, or, or withholding from something, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we can talk about how that works and how one comes to that and so forth. But that's, that's where the penance comes in. That's where reconciliation comes in. Then the penitent, that is the person who's come to confession, is invited to offer a prayer of contrition, and that is, you know, in their own voices. It, again, as second graders, many of us who are cradle Catholics, we're taught a, a kind of prayer that we could remember. That's perfectly fine. It's also completely ad hoc. There's no formal prayer. There are a lot of ones that we all learned, and those are fine. But it's simply what's expected of us, what's, what's required in that moment is contrition, to acknowledge that I am really sorry for what I have done. I'm really sorry for what I have failed to do. Sound familiar, doesn't it, right? And then the priest offers a prayer of absolution. The prayer of absolution, again, is a beautiful prayer. We talked about it last week. It goes like this, God, the father of mercies through the death and resurrection of his son has reconciled the world to himself and sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. By the ministry of the church, may God grant you pardon and peace. And I absolve you from your sins in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the first part of that prayer, I love that prayer so much. The first part is a recollection of salvation history. Who is working in the world? Who is forgiving sins? God. God is Christ. God is Holy Spirit. 
The second part of the prayer is recognizing the church's ministry and responding to those who are broken, those who have sinned, those who have been sinned against, and the notion of reconciliation, right? That through the ministry of the church, may God grant you pardon and peace, not just forgiveness. God's granting the pardon, but may God also give you peace, a healing, and that I, as the minister on behalf of the church, am absolving you of the guilt of the weight that carries you down, the chains that hold you down. That's what's going on there. It's a healing sacrament. It's not a sacrament of guilt. It's not a sacrament of punishment. It's not a sacrament of judgment. And this is something Pope Francis has said over and over again. It is a healing sacrament, and it's partnered with the anointing of the sick. I love so much of that, and thank you for taking the time to really spell that out for us. I have a couple of technical questions to follow that. I think <laughs> I think if people have a mental picture of confession, they may have a traditional notion of a confessional, which is a physical space that separates the penitent from the priest with kind of a rote screen. And part of that is, I guess, and I'm going to scare quote this, anonymity. My experience of going through the sacrament has often been that I'm sitting in a chair face-to-face with a priest. First of all, what's the difference between that kind of old-school style of anonymity and the face-to-face approach? Does it change anything about the sacrament? And is one better or more legit than the other? So there are actually several forms of the sacrament of penance. What you're describing in both the face-to-face and behind-a-screen form is a one-on-one celebration of the rite of penance or the sacrament of penance. And that's a relatively new iteration of the form of the sacrament. To really see the evolution of the sacrament, you have to go back to the 4th century, to the 300s. And this is before Constantine kind of legalized, sort of like legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana. He decriminalized Christianity. It wasn't official. It just wasn't a crime. Uh, It wasn't going to be persecuted by the Roman Empire. Prior to that, there have been waves of persecutions similar to what we talked about in an earlier segment where you, in in what would I think fairly be called an abusive situation, were raised and reared in a sense to constantly be on guard about the communists coming and questioning you, what would you say? There was a similar sort of reality uh, in practice in, in the early centuries of Christianity where people were being forced to renounce their faith or to die martyrs defending it in a variety of contexts. And the question surfaced, what happens if somebody denies their faith They've already been baptized. They deny their faith. Can they ever be reconciled back to the community? And so this is where the sacrament of of penance and where we get the notion of reconciliation really comes to the fore. For many, many centuries, it was a public communal celebration sacrament where oftentimes it was public knowledge already that somebody had committed this sin of apostasy of denying their faith or something like that. And there were processes that are modeled in the, in the one-on-one version of the sacrament, which most people are familiar with today. You know, there was an acknowledgement of contrition. There was a penance that was placed on them. Oftentimes it was like what you see in the RCIA process of, of being dismissed, you know, from the celebration of the Eucharist or, or these sorts of things, right? They, they take many different forms over the years. This notion of one-on-one confession and the kind of anonymity that you're describing is really a monastic practice that's oftentimes credited to the Celtic islands and Ireland in particular, where there is a combination over the centuries that developed of quasi-spiritual direction, quasi-sacrament of penance, less a, a case of anonymity and more for the case of privacy. The rude screen that separates the penitent from the confessor 
you know, there are a lot of different reasons. I'm not an expert on the history of this, and so I don't know for certain, but I do know that there are a number of different reasons why something like that developed. Part of it might have been anonymity, but part of it also was the kind of preservation of the, of the kind of mystique of what's going on in terms of salvation history and so forth. Confessing your mortal sins is a pretty significant experience. And so all of those factors come together. All of that is to say those are two ways historically that the sacrament has been celebrated. A third way is called general absolution. And this is something that is still in practice. It's, it's oftentimes called the third form of the rite of penance. Um, most bishops are, are incredibly hesitant to grant permission to use it, although Pope Francis, we should say, during the pandemic of coronavirus, has given permission to offer a general absolution you know, in terms of the church worldwide. And, and general absolution is either out of pastoral necessity or out of immediate emergency and urgency. So the kind of most common example of where you would use general absolution is you're at a, at a war front, a battle line in, in World War II. You've got all these troops here. You have a priest chaplain, and he offers the prayer of absolution over all of the soldiers. And, you know, God forbid that they should die before they're able to go to the sacrament of penance, et cetera, et cetera. One of the catches with that form is that the expectation is that when you are able at the earliest sort of convenience or ability to go to private confession where you can personally confess your sins, that's expected of you. But should you die or something happen that you're unable to get to that point, and here you'd see with the pandemic today, you know, folks are in social isolation, they're in quarantine, they may not have that opportunity before they die or for a very long time. And so the the absolution, the, the celebration of the sacrament is completely valid and licit, but there is that little hook given the, the development of the sacrament over the centuries. So I, I want to ask a couple more questions, and one is kind of theological and biblical, and the other is simply aesthetic. So let's start with the theological biblical one first. I mentioned earlier that I'm in conversation with a lot of Protestants, and something that comes up with some regularity is an interesting passage from the Bible that says, the offense against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. And so let me ask you, uh, just in a general sense, are there any sins that a priest can't forgive, or is this sacrament universally applicable to anything that can occur? Good question. And uh, in, in my favorite German word, jein, yes and no. So there are canonically certain mortal sins that are that are, and here's a technical term, the absolution from which is reserved to the local ordinary, which means that there are some sins, and, and probably the most kind of common one is, is abortion, is legally, canonically reserved for the bishop. Okay, so what does this mean? That means all things remaining equal, your diocesan priest, if you go to confession and you confess to this sin, there has to be permission granted from the chancery from the bishop for the priest to offer absolution in response to that. In other words, that's what, what the recourse to the bishop typically means. However, pastorally speaking, there are, in most dioceses, the bishops, when they grant faculties for a priest, that means a diocesan priest or a priest of another community who's ministering in that diocese gets faculties in the diocese in which he resides. Those faculties, it's like a license to, val uh, to licitly celebrate the sacraments. And usually that's something that's delegated to all the priests who receive faculties. So there are very few dioceses where bishops actually reserve that 
right to themselves. So that's one thing. The second thing is there are some religious orders that are canonically exempt from that, and I am part of one of them. So a Franciscan friar, any any of the mendicant orders of the big O, so the Carmelites, the Franciscans, the Augustinians, Trinitarians, we are, by virtue of church law, we can absolve from those sins that are ordinarily reserved for the bishop. And the history there is long and, and complicated, and it's 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 not really important other than to say that some of us, this was a, a big kind of funny thing when we were in, in seminary. And, uh, you know, we had, you may remember when we were in Los Angeles, my, my classmate, Tom Gibbons, who's a Paulist, and you know, Tom was in this class, and there was another Paulist, and there were a couple others. And, and we Franciscans, and, and I had a couple Carmelite classmates, and Carmelites teased the Paulists about this because they are subject to this like diocesan priests are but we as mendicant uh, friars are not what does that mean practically speaking for most christian women and men nothing that's something we need to worry about it's never anything you should worry about and in most cases it's not a concern at all so there is nothing that cannot be absolved if somebody comes with contrition and i think that's an important thing it's something pope francis has highlighted a lot in his ministry as bishop of rome that there have been, and I've heard of so many horror stories of people who have felt judged, who have been verbally attacked or made to feel worse going into the confessional. To me, there is, there's probably no greater sin. That is something that should be reserved for the bishop to absolve alone. And Pope Francis has pointed this out. It is not our place to judge. I've often thought it is the greatest sign of the Holy Spirit twofold in the celebration of the sacrament of penance. One is that anybody would step foot into the confessional or approach a priest for the sacrament. That is the sign that the Holy Spirit is already working in them. We don't need to say or do anything to make them feel any worse. You don't need to know the details either. This is another thing that's a misconception. This is not an opportunity to ask 20 questions. The point is, this is something between the penitent you know, and God, and that our role is to preside over the celebration of this sacrament. The second thing is, and I'll speak from my own personal experience as the presider of the sacrament, as, as a confessor, which is there's no greater sign of the Holy Spirit for me than to prepare myself to celebrate the sacrament by saying, get out of the way, Dan. And and that it's, you know, you, there's nothing, and I tell my my students this, the students who are preparing for ordination, there's nothing that you can do to prepare yourself for the celebration of the sacrament. You can think a million ways about what if somebody comes in and says this? What if I'm in this situation and that happens? You just don't know what's going on in people's lives. And so the only way that you're able to do or say or to be present in any kind of meaningful way is when the Holy Spirit, when God is the one who's doing the work. And so that is, that's really important. And I think it's important for our listeners who are ordained to hear and to be reminded of. And again, I'm just really echoing Pope Francis. And it's important, I think, for our listeners who are penitents to hear as well, to know you're right, that this is not a, a source of judgment. This is not a place to be cross-examined by the presider, by the priest. This is a place where you should experience healing like you would with the anointing of the sick. Well, there's a, so much more that I want to ask you about this, but for the purposes of time, perhaps we should bring this to a close. But on the way out, I have one more question, and it's an aesthetic question. I have noticed when I have participated in the sacrament that oftentimes the priest will wear a purple stole. Is there anything significant about that, or am I just noticing something that priests always do? So, technically... The stole color doesn't matter, and it probably should be white. 
However, traditionally, and this is a carryover from really before the Second Vatican Council, where there was a lot more emphasis on violet as the kind of color of penance, that the purple stole is what is traditionally used. That's basically carried over, but it does not matter. And again, to avoid magical thinking, the priest can hear a confession and absolve a penitent, even if he's not wearing a stole or a Roman collar or uh, you know his habit or anything like that. It's not what causes you know the uh, the grace of Christ working uh, in that moment or the spirit's presence but that's that's sort of the background is that you know just like during the season of lent and during the season of advent we have the violet color is the liturgical color uh, it's a color of penance it's a color of kind of asceticism and so i think that's why it's typically used though it's it's more out of tradition than it is out of theological or liturgical significance. One of my favorite memories, now that you mention it, is the, the priest that helped to bring me into the faith, Father Richard at Vanderbilt. One of the confessions that I did with him was in his study there in the chancery, and he was just in shirt sleeves, and so was I. And it, it, felt, it felt really human and very warm, <laughs> which yeah. I don't often associate with the sacrament, but it was nice to have one of my early confessions be exactly that, an informal affair without a lot of trappings to really help me understand that this is a very human-sized thing that we're talking about. Father Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to sort of unpack this sacrament with us, and I think we're going to have to leave it there for today. But thanks also just for this conversation throughout the podcast. It's always such a joy to talk to you. Likewise, David. Pleasure is uh, is mine, and it's, uh, it's always good to see you remotely, and uh, great to hear you. Great to talk with you. The Francis Effect Podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show in social distancing from our respective homes here in Hyde Park. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. Normally, we have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. If you want to know more about them, check them out at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we do appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod, and you can help to support the show. That's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. If you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. That's Francis Effect, spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have now almost six full seasons of shows that you can go back and listen to, and we hope that you'll join us again in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. 